0: Is there a little bit of light, Keith? That's lovely. That's enough for plenty. <laughs> Great. Let there be light, and there was. Seems strangely Christmassy, don't you think? Good morning, everyone. I'm- uh, welcome to those of you, uh, some new faces around. It's lovely to welcome you to our service. Perhaps you're here uh, with a friend or you're here because uh, the guys were sharing from Romania there. We're really glad to have you with us this morning and uh, thrilled that you've taken the opportunity just to uh, share in our morning together. We're starting something brand new today and uh, maybe as you came in you were given one of those or one of those or both. Ah, good. Tony, Tony had both. Um, that's fantastic. So this one, loads of these, take those, that's got the details of the services uh, coming up on it, all you need to know. This one is for you to give away, so don't take this if you're not going to give it away, okay? Leave that back for someone else to take, to give away, alright? So the cards are to give away, um, and focus particularly on the services around Christmas Day. We're going to do the Gospel of Luke together, Starting today and ending on Easter Sunday in 2012, following Jesus right the way through. Uh, Luke is the biggest single author in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel according to Luke, clues in the name, and he also wrote the book of Acts as well. Uh, Luke begins at chapter 1 verse 1 telling the story, not where Matthew began with the birth of Jesus or where Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus, but Luke takes one more step back to help us understand some of the events that led up to the birth of Jesus and so we begin today following Jesus from heaven. Luke was a doctor, he was an intelligent, educated man. He had the uh, gift of the historian about him, and he set about the historian's task, we're told in verse 3, hope you've got it all open in front of you, Luke chapter 1 verse 3, to write an orderly account. And he tells us why in verse 4 he's concerned for the truth, and uh, wants to make absolutely certain that all the things that are being said about Jesus are both accurate and verified and written down. And so we owe Luke an enormous gratitude for taking the time and trouble to do this. He's anxious that we might know that he set about it carefully using eyewitness records and uh, the writings of people who were there. He tells us that in verse 2 because he knows that what he's about to tell us is weird by anyone's imagination, not least a scientific doctor. He's about to talk to us about angels arriving. He's about to tell us about babies that do somersaults in the womb before they were born. And he's about to tell us of a virgin birth. Why? Well, he's writing for a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God, and a number of people have thought, well, perhaps it's just a way of introducing his gospel, but here is a story for all those that love God, and that would be true and right. More likely, though, is that Theophilus was a high-ranking official. Luke uses the title Most Excellent. He uses that title several times in the book of Acts to refer to physical, high-ranking government officials. And so it's more likely that Luke was literally writing for Theophilus. Maybe Theophilus commissioned Luke to write. Maybe Theophilus even funded Luke to take time out of his business and his travels to get this uh, all written down. We're not sure. Some people suggest that Theophilus was a high-ranking official in Rome whilst Paul was there awaiting his execution and Luke being with Paul wrote this account in order to help Theophilus in his judgment. We don't know, although for certain other reasons beyond us this morning that seems less likely. What we do know though is that Luke wrote the gospel and there's loads of evidence about that and so we could go on. I want us to zero in this morning just on a couple of verses that we find in Luke chapter 1, beginning at the very first one. And here it is. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Key word this morning is this one, fulfilled. Luke wants you and I to know right from the outset that we can only understand this story by looking beyond the story. It wasn't that just out of a clear blue sky, an elderly couple suddenly had a baby and a virgin became pregnant. Luke wants us to understand that everything that happened was a fulfillment. It was to do with something that had been talked about, waited for, anticipated, and indeed longed for. So way back in Genesis, when the writer of Genesis tells us that God spoke to Adam and Eve and said to Adam and Eve one day there will be a son of Eve one of Eve's male offspring, who will in the end crush Satan's head. Because of that verse, way back at the beginning, there was a little bit of anticipation that something would happen one day that would reverse the catastrophic fall that the whole of the human race had faced. And when the priests, through the Old Testament, longed for a day when the endless cycle of dealing with sin was over, And when the prophet spoke of a new reign, a new king that would be even greater than King David's reign had been, there was a picture emerging that one day something would happen in time and space that would turn on its head all that this world had known. And Luke says, I want you to know that what I'm about to share with you is something that has now been fulfilled. Who's the fulfiller? God's the fulfiller. Luke wants us to know that this is something that began in heaven, that God himself has done, that we couldn't do, we couldn't make happen, we couldn't work it up ourselves, we couldn't create it. It's not something that was built from earth, but something that's come down to us from heaven. Something that God had promised, and God had now done. The story begins, not with us, but with God. The story begins not on earth, but in heaven. I I don't know about you, but I need my life to be caught up in something that is more transcendent, that is bigger than is above the things of earth. What about you? Is this world enough, honestly? Honestly? Is it enough? I met a guy yesterday who had every Apple product almost imaginable. And he told me of some amazing things about how his cruel wife was dragging him off to the gym and yet he was able brilliantly to carry on watching the film on his iPad as he drove to the gym. Or was driven to the gym, I should add. (laughs) Amazing what you can do these days. Honestly, is earth enough? Is, is it, are you satisfied with, with it? Or, or is it still just one more thing and that'll be enough? We've tried the one more thing and that's not enough either. Luke starts right here, he says, what you need to understand is a fulfillment. This is something that has come not from earth, but it's come from heaven. Who is the fulfiller? Not you or me or even Jesus in an earthly sense. The fulfiller is God himself. And there's such an important lesson here for all of us to learn. The best things in life are not those things that you can make happen. The best things in life are never the things that you can make happen. What I'm beginning to understand is that the best things in life are those things that come from heaven and I get out of the way quick enough to let them come. Those are the best things. And when our Christian life, as mine does and yours does, gets reduced to a life of struggle and strife, when it all depends on us, and if only I can do one more good thing this week, it'll all be okay. If only I can get that done. If only I can turn up at this and make sure I finish that. One more thing. It's just like the people outside who think, one more thing and that'll be enough. And it isn't. And the grace is this, that you are allowed to be part of, to share in, to get caught up in what God from heaven wants to do. Firstly, Luke chapter 1, it's a proclamation of grace. God has done something spectacular and he invites you and let me just define you for a moment in Christian love, grubby, sinful, rebellious, selfish, proud, arrogant, stubborn, deceitful, greedy, impure, you, to be part of his majestic plan from heaven. How cool is that? This is the heart of what we understand the whole thing to be about that God has fulfilled, God has done something, and invited you and I to be part of it. Look at that other word, if the key word in this verse was fulfilled, there's another little phrase just at the end that you mustn't miss, among us. Now Luke was writing that, and he personalizes it. He says this is something that has happened to us. Now ask yourself the question, was Luke one of the original eyewitness disciples? No. No. No, Luke is a second-generation Christian. Yet, he has understood something that all of us need to understand in our Christian journey. Luke says, even though I'm a second-generation Christian, something so proud, profound has happened. God has done something so uh, so majestic uh, on earth that everything has been turned upside down, that I can touch it, feel it, be part of it, even though I was not physically there. How cool is that? That the life that Jesus lived touches you, changes you, comforts challenges, rebukes you, turns your life upside down, even though you were not there. And just to make sure we understood, in the original tense, it's a perfect tense. What Luke is saying, being fulfilled is a perfect tense. In other words, a completed action. Jesus has done it. He has lived and died. He's never going to do that again, yet... The effects of his death and resurrection go on even to this day. And I'm a part of it, even though I'm grubby and sinful and stubborn and willful and proud. He catches me up in what God is doing. And so Luke says, look, something's been fulfilled among you. Hallelujah. That we're caught up in. That we become part of. Not by anything that we've ever done, but it's all by God's grace. Remember uh, that Luke was with Paul in Ephesus when Paul moved into his sweet spot. Remember that from a few weeks ago of how Paul had uh, started discipling those around him and sending them out, teaching them to disciple others who then discipled others. And so like a virus, the gospel spread through the whole of Asia. It was a fantastic explosion of growth in the early church. And Luke saw that. And so as Luke writes his gospel after those days, he writes to the among us and says you're included in this life that Jesus lived and this death that Jesus died and this resurrection that we are all a part of. We're not quite sure who he sent this gospel to because we're not quite sure where Theophilus was. Was he in Rome or was he in Antioch or was he with someone else? But for Luke it it never mattered. What Jesus had done was something that gathers up all of us. choose to embrace the truth of his coming. So when Jesus asked the twelve, you feed the five thousand, Jesus is asking me, how much faith, Simon, do you have? When a desperate woman pushes through the crowd to touch Jesus, Jesus says, Simon, how desperate are you to push through the crowd, to push through every obstacle, to reach me, to touch me? When one leper out of ten comes back to say thank you, am I in the one or am I in the nine? Am I the rich young ruler, having thrown all my money at every day, at the best medicine of the day, going to Jesus and saying, my daughter is about to die, my only hope is that you come? Or am I the daughter who's dying, scared that this breath might be my last? Am I the widow who gave all that she had or am I the one that promised so much and delivered so little. You see, this story, that's God's story, is also my story, and I'm caught up in it. I cannot follow Jesus through Luke's Gospel as if it's some theoretical exercise, as if it's a matter of interest about how Jesus lived. What Luke is saying, this has happened among us, it touches us and challenges us and changes us and if it doesn't do those things you've missed it all together. If this is God and this is what he has done, then I encourage you with me through these weeks to read Luke's gospel longing to understand what it means to be caught up in the story. And we'll talk much more about that when we get into the new year. So Luke introduces to us a a gospel and it's a proclamation of grace. How long do you think it takes to read Luke's gospel? An hour? Any advance on an hour? Two? Yeah, average reader, two hours to read Luke's gospel. So it's, it's not a big book we can all read Luke's gospel multiple times in the next months. In fact if you're bored you could read Luke's gospel now. By the time I'm finished you'll have read it three times as a normal reader. And that might even be better than listening to me. So this is proclamation of grace. Luke links it into all that's gone before. And one of the ways that he does that, apart from this first verse about fulfilling and about it touching us and being among us and so on, is that he picks up the story exactly where the Old Testament left off. The Old Testament, some 400 years ago, left off with the book of Malachi. Thank you very much, Tony. And at the end of Malachi, there was a promise. Not only a promise that the Lord himself would come, but the promise that, that God would raise up someone who would be like the precursor, the messenger. The one who would introduce the real one who was coming. The John the Baptist type figure. And so uh, without any uh, ifs and buts and maybes, Luke dives right in to begin to tell us about the John the Baptist type figure. But what you need to understand in order to feel the strength of this, is that since Malachi's day, for 400 years, what had been happening? Silence. Four Hundred years of silence. What did it look like God was doing? Nothing. Nothing. You with me? Some of you, all of us, have known times when it's silent. And God might be doing something somewhere else, but for me, he's doing nothing. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It feels like I'm on my own. It feels like God's, whatever those promises were, they're gone. They've gone up in a puff of smoke. They've gone been lost through the generations. So, something's been missed in translation. These people are at the end of 400 years of what seems to be nothing, of what seems to be silence. And Luke is introducing us to the breaking of the silence. What needs to happen for the silence to break? Or perhaps a better question. What kind of person do you need to be for the silence to break? The trouble is, while the silence is there, you and I are tempted to think a number of things. We are tempted to think, well, perhaps God doesn't speak anymore. Ever thought like that? Or... You're tempted to think that somehow a normal Christian life shouldn't have the expectation that God would speak that way anymore. And you settle for something different to the life that God has offered us, both through Old and New Testament, where he speaks on every page. And it's fascinating the way Luke introduces us to Jesus. The first thing that Jesus says in Luke's gospel, he's in the desert. And we know what happens in the desert. He gets tempted. And the first temptation, Jesus is there in the desert. And the devil is tempting Jesus about stuff. He says to Jesus, you can have all the stuff that this world gives you. All the bread that you need and all the clothes and the houses and the lifestyle, everything that you want that this world has got. And the very, very first words on the lips of Jesus is a rebuke of that temptation. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and this is what he says. To teach that a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Think about this for a moment. We think about the big temptations, the money, the sex, and the power, and Jesus was tempted in different ways around all of those things in the desert. But the primary issue was this. What if Jesus was to live a life where he no longer heard God speak? Over. Finished. End. No good news. No gospel. A complete break in communication between father and son. The most fundamental thing about our lives is hearing God speak. And I don't know about you, but too often I settle for a Christian life that's full of other things instead of hearing God speak. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I do lots of stuff because that's easier than being still and hearing him speak. I keep myself busy with things because that's easier than than straining and teaching my heart to hear what God is saying each day. And the life that God's called us to live gets lost in translation. The Bible's very clear that the life that God has for us is one where His Word is the very air, the very oxygen, the very nourishment that we need simply to survive. And yet we've taken it that if you hear God speak, somehow you're a special super-Christian. No, 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 this is the bread and butter of what it means to walk the Jesus life. Isaiah says these words here, He awakens me morning by morning, he wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. That's not always how I wake up. You still love me? With that deep confession? I know that's how you wake up, skipping for joy. Good morning, Lord. For me, it's more like, Good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> uh, and I'm serious, though. I'm working really hard to learn what it is for Jesus to wake me up like that. Because that's the life to which God has called me. And you. And you know, because you get glimpses of it, when you get up and you spend, you you open your heart to God in those early moments of the day, what a difference that makes. You get a little window and you do it for a couple of weeks all excited and then like me, you oversleep and you get lost in it all and it all goes wrong. And you get that little glimpse. I I, I want to encourage you to hang in there with the glimpse that God's given you. Because this is the life. And what Luke writes about in this opening chapter is three people, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, who live lives that were in a place where God could break the silence. Oh God, let my life be in a place where you break the silence over me day by day. And Jesus made it a defining mark of a disciple. Jesus said, you'll know if you're a disciple, and you'll know it because you'll hear my voice. You'll know you're a disciple of mine because you'll hear me call your name. And for some of us, it's been decades, or weeks, or days, since we heard him call our name. That's not the life God's called you to. Listening to God is fundamental. Fundamental. And so we're introduced to Zechariah, and then Mary. Look, look at it with me. With you, verse five. We're introduced to Zechariah. The silence is about to be broken. So, what are the people like that uh, that are open to hear God's voice? What are people like with whom God can break the silence? So I want to be like them. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. They're good stock, everybody. They're the kind of people, you know, whoo, good stock. Aaron's descendants and all of that jazz. But the Apostle Saul was of good stock and he went around murdering the Christians. So don't get too excited about that. Then look at verse 6 and look at the end of verse 6. And they kept all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. That's pretty cool too, isn't it? The Pharisees did that. So don't get too caught up on that. Notice what's tucked right in the middle. Don't miss it. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were upright in the sight of men. And you spend a lot of your time doing that, if you're like me. Yeah, Upright in the sight, making sure it looks alright. Upright so that you can see, yep, he's doing okay. I look at you, yep, we're all doing Okay. That's not the deal. Something deeper, much deeper going on. It's about our heart, our uprightness in the sight of God. This couple had hearts that were clean and open and pure before God. It's a beautiful thing. And I love the way... It says that you know it talks about Zechariah and Elizabeth like they were a couple in this together. They walked together before God and with each other. When was the last time you prayed with your spouse? And if that's so hard, what is that a sign of? And what are you going to do about it? And I'm sorry to slip that in under the radar. It's a bit below the belt. But something's wrong with the life that I sometimes find myself living. It's not the life God's called me to, nor you either. And whether you're married or not, whether you're in a close relationship with a friend or not, what is so amazing, that these guys kept their hearts open, despite what they had been through. Many of us think in our hearts even if we dare not say it out loud, if I had not been through this, this, this and this, then it would be easy for me to have my heart open to God. My heart is closed a little bit. My heart is filled with some stuff that isn't quite good for me because I've been through that, that, that and that. And if you'd been through that, that, that and that, your heart would be like mine too. Hey listen, these guys, these guys couldn't have kids and that's, that's, that's a bad, hard Agonizing thing to live with in these days. In those days, the whole village was trying to work out what they'd done wrong for God to punish them that way. So Zechari- um, Zechariah and Elizabeth go through all those childhood years of the babies being born and everyone's shunning them because they're obviously not holy enough and all this. none of it's true, but it's, there it was. They were disgraced. Because of what had happened. And think about their own personal longings. They'd longed for this God whom they'd served day in, day out. He was a priest for goodness sake. Why had God denied them this? Why had God been so unkind to them? Why why such a disappointment? And they faced a future without any pension. We understand that. That was a joke. (laughs) I know it's not very funny. I'm planning to work till I'm 117 seems about right. Uh, uh, they had none of the protection that we get, and that's not to make any comment on what's happening politically, but they, they get none of the provision that we get. They're, no one to look after them in their old age, literally on the rubbish heap. They'd been through all that, and yet their hearts were open. Isn't that a brilliant, beautiful thing? Their hearts were open and clean before God. What is the darkness in you that stops you listening? What is it that stops your heart from being open enough to hear him speak? If you were to pray the prayer that David prayed in the Old Testament about God searching us and knowing us and God highlighting in you the things that stand against his purpose, the things that get in the way, the things that cloud your heart, what would God say today? What would he say? If you are anything like me, there is stuff in me that stops me listening to God. But the other side of that, yeah, it is like that, Bob. But the other side of it is this. There is less in me that stops me from listening than there used to be. There's less than there used to be. What are, there's less. One of the central metaphors of Christmas is the light coming and shining in the darkness. And uh, what does light do when it shines in the darkness? The light doesn't come and sit side by side with the darkness. When you switch a light on in the room, the darkness disappears. Now, there might be some physics geek here who will tell us that that doesn't really happen. Something else takes place. But for us simple folk, that's what happens. The metaphor works because the light removes the darkness. Wouldn't you agree with me that it's totally meaningless to celebrate Christmas? Mince pies and carol singing and gift-giving and tree decorating, and carol services, and even Christingle prayers, all utterly meaningless, if I'm not prepared to allow the light to shine in my darkness. Wouldn't that be a nonsense? Wouldn't that be utterly hypocrisy, well, full of hypocrisy, whatever the adjective is, For, for... For me to do all this stuff about the wonderful light that's come into the world, but this darkness in here that stops me from living the life, that stops me from hearing the word that I need to hear to be alive, I keep the darkness. All meaningless. Here were people that had open hearts. It somehow kept their channel open towards God. All those years of bitterness, pain and resentment. Maybe they prayed every night, God help us to forgive those who shout at us and scream at us. Lord, help us to keep trusting in you even though we haven't got a child and we don't understand. Lord, help us to keep faith with you even though it feels like you've been unfair to us. I'm really appreciating the 24-7 Advent prayer spaces. You'll have seen it on my blog, as a little advert. Uh, five minutes every day just to get you thinking and praying. And the first one that I did put actually on my blog, uh, rather than just the link, was, was uh, last week. And Pete Gregg, very simply. The whole context for Christmas, the light coming, is that we're in darkness. What is the context for your Christmas this year? What is the darkness this year that Jesus' light comes to shine upon? The other person is Mary. How did she remain in this place of of being open and a a posture of listening to God? We don't know anything about her daily routine or hardly anything about her upbringing. And out of the silence, Gabriel rocks up. And she responds incredibly to this life-changing demand that was made upon her. At an incredible personal cost. You and I would have said, I need a minute. I want to phone a friend, give me 50-50, I can't possibly decide that now, but Mary was ready, right in there with what God was asking. We don't have to wait long to understand why. See after Mary's been with Gabriel, she rushes off to Elizabeth, Elizabeth's more pregnant, the baby leaps in her womb and all that, and suddenly we find ourselves at verse 39 and Mary explodes into song. What do you notice about the song? Where did she get all the words from? All from the Old Testament. What did Mary know? The Old Testament. She's 12, 13 years of age. And she's so full of what God is doing, so understands the significance of what God is doing. She is a a young girl caught up in the God story. Has she read it every day? I'm sure. Has she listened to it every day? I'm sure. Has she prayed over it every day? I'm sure. Big cheer for Mary's parents. It was their responsibility to bring up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That was the plan. That's the plan that God gave for families. Teach your children Teach it every day as you walk along, as you play your games, as you sit around. Stick it on the door so they see it when they go out. Stick it on the door so they see it when they come back in. Make this be your waking and sleeping, everything about your life together. May it be soaked in the word of God. Now it is true, you can read God's word and not engage with it understand it technically, brilliantly, and still not hear God speak. But I tell you this, the people that I know, every single one of them, who've learned that Isaiah trick of waking up and hearing God speaking, know everything about God's word. They're in it. They live it. They eat it, as the psalmist says. They digest it. They meditate on it. It fills their hearts. And it was a job of parents to teach children to do that kind of stuff. Oh God, please help us. Please help us. You know, I have to say, I mean, Claire and Heather might be brilliant, but they can't do it for your kids. They cannot do it for your kids. Whatever you do, please, 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 do not leave the spiritual well-being of your children to this church. Unless you're on a suicide mission. Because we cannot do it, however brilliant we are. Survey of churches where the, uh, the youth people and the children's people were top notch. It was all singing, all dancing. It did everything we would want it to do and so much more. Said very simply, the people that impacted our kids the most by miles were the parents. 80, 85% up there. Youth minister, children's team leader, all that stuff. Down in the 30s, the 40s. It's the plan of God. Teach make it part of your life, make it the way that you live, share it around the table, share it when you get up, share it when you go to sleep. Man, this is a massive challenge to all of us, massive, how we do that. And so Mary was brilliantly ready to listen when God was about to speak. This time last year, in fact this Sunday last year, we did the whole soap thing, uh, started talking about it and then some of you uh, got going in January at reading a little bit every day and seeking to hear God speak and, uh, and some of you went great guns for a while and uh, dropped off that some of you went great guns for a while dropped off and have started again some of you have been going all the way through I'd love you to contact me in the next couple of weeks just so send me an email tweet twitter facebook anything blogs whatever just find a comment space and write on it and just just tell me your experience of that this year Love to know, especially, if you're still doing it. Some of you are still doing it, uh, still soaping every day. You're waking up or at some point in the day, you're reading a bit of God's Word and you're, you're using the soap uh, kind of pattern just as a format to hear God speak. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about, go to Burlington Baptist forward slash soap and it'll tell you everything that you need to know there. But somehow, if I'm going to hear God speak, I have to be in His Word. And Mary was, for sure. (laughs) Zechariah struggled to believe what God was saying to him. It was better for him that God struck him dumb before he said more things and dug a bigger hole for himself. And that's often the best way. If you can't say yes to God, better to say nothing at all before you put your foot right in it. Mary, in contrast, was ready to go. But both end... At the end of chapter 1 of Luke, both end with a praise that's never ending. Something unstoppable had begun. How cool is that? And just as a little bit of evidence that something unstoppable had begun, 2,000 years later, you and I sit on wooden seats in a building in Ipswich. It will not stop. Because what began in heaven will finish in heaven. And that's the message that Luke wants us to understand in these opening verses. So where are we? This wonderful, wonderful uh, praise of Zechariah. Just read some of it with me. Now, his father, 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come and has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn. Horn was a sign of strength. An animal's horn was where an animal was understood to have its strength. Uh, he's raised up his strength of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he's fulfilling the kingly line of David as he said through his holy prophets of long ago it has been fulfilled among us, to show mercy, verse 72, to our, four, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham, he's fulfilled something that goes right back to the beginning, to Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, it's all there, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all days. And you, talking about John, my child, be, <coughs> excuse me, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Something has started that will never stop. When the light shines, the darkness flees. Something has started that will never end. And I don't know about you, I want to be in on that. And to be in on that for Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, they needed to hear God speak. Maybe it's no different for us. The story that began in heaven will end in heaven. And it catches us up along the way. So, to the central question this morning. Are you hearing God speak? No, really? Really? really, in your ordinary waking and sleeping, you're hearing God speak. That's the life to which he's called you. That's the life to which he's called you. And there's much to learn about quietening our hearts and learning to listen and leaning into what we think God might be saying. There's much to learn from one another about those times we do hear God speak and understanding why sometimes that's easier. And indeed, times when God is silent because he's trying to say something to us through the silence So what's in you today that's stopping you hearing God speak? Where's the darkness that God might just shine his light on this morning? Let's pray.